You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. The beans and rice I ate in Nicaragua were the best I've ever had. El arroz y los frijoles que comió en Nicaragua fueron lo mejor que, eh, que ha tenido. Uh, I know exactly what they put in there um, because I asked my Nicaraguan mom, Maria, for the recipe the day I left. Sabe exactamente cómo lo hicieron porque preguntó a su mamá el día que salieron. I made it when I got back to Minnesota, but it didn't taste the same. Traté de hacerlo cuando regresé a Minnesota, pero no estaba el mismo. I know it was the exact same ingredients because I took home eight pounds of the beans that they used to make it. Sé que los ingredientes fueron los mismos porque trajo ocho libras de los frijoles de Nicaragua. What I think we needed was that incredible love and energy that Maria put into it. Creo que la cosa que se falta fue el eh, amor y energía increíble que María usó. We can't get that here. It's special to Nicaragua. Eh, no lo tenemos aquí. Es especial en Nicaragua. When I asked Jider, my brother, what was the most fun thing about our downtown Minneapolis kind of day of exploration, he said, patinar sobre hielo, to ice skate. Cuando preguntó a Jider, su hermano, cuál fue el uh, cosa mejor del de día del de centro dijo que fue patinar sobre el hielo. That's something special about Minnesota. Eso es algo especial de Minnesota. It's kind of obvious to say, but all of this couldn't have possibly happened without the help of some incredible, hardworking people on both sides. Uh, es un poco obvio, pero no sería posible sin uh, mucho trabajo muy duro en uh, de gente en both uh, en los dos países. Uh, so an incredible huge thanks to Doña Rosa, Doña Julia y Doña Elizabeth por todo que has sido. Thank you so much for everything you've done. This Gracias. wouldn't have been possible without you. Gracias tanto por todo que anunciaron. Uh, no sería posible sin ustedes. Minnesota and Nicaragua have so much special stuff to share with each other. Minnesota and Nicaragua tienen tanto, tantos cosas especiales a compartir con el otro. And it wouldn't be possible to do this without YCE and all the work that's been done around this trip. No sería posible sin el PML y todo el trabajo que um, han contribuido. My family in Nicaragua welcomed me with every fiber of their beings. El, 
su familia le dio un bienvenido grande. Um, now that that part of our lives in Nicaragua is here, let's show them the incredible, all-encompassing sanctuary that they gave us in Nicaragua. Ahora que esa parte de nosotros que vive en Nicaragua está aquí, eh, vamos eh, no, que nos da un bienvenido eh, igualmente grande a los que están aquí ahora. In the words of Howard Thurman, an author, philosopher, and 20th century civil rights leader. En las palabras de Howard Thurman, un autor y líder del de, um, movimiento de los derechos civiles. When the song of angels is stilled, cuando el canción de ángeles ya ha parado, when the star in the sky is gone, y la estrella en el cielo ya no está, when the kings and princes are home, cuando los reyes y príncipes han regresado a sus hogares, when the shepherds are back with their flock, cuando los pastores han regresado a sus granjas, the work of Christmas begins. El trabajo de Navidad empieza. Let us be about the work of Christmas, to find the lost, to heal the broken. Que somos, eh, que hacemos el trabajo de Navidad para encontrar los perdidos, para curar los enfermos. To work for justice wherever we are. Para trabajar para justicia por toda parte. Come, let us worship together. Vamos, que veneramos juntos. Today, instead of having a sermon, we have a homily. And if you did not know what the distinction is between the two, know that a homily is a shorter reflection <laughs> as opposed to a well-reasoned, thought-out argument. <laughs> Both are informed by experience, some kind of text, history, tradition, and reason. I am so grateful today at the end of this year that I've been asked to prepare a homily instead of a sermon. <laughs> Because like many of you, I have spent the last week in that mind-numbing Netherland called family holidays. And each day, I knew it was happening. Each day I lost brain cells <laughs> to sugar cookies, saturated fats, questionable drink mixtures poured by relatives I do not know well, <laughs> and limited exercise so much that I looked at my, I try to do 15, 20,000 steps a day. I looked at my steps over the last week, 300 one day. 200 the next day. And also, as my teenager and my toddler, I'm blessed to have both, they sought over this last week to sneak off and disregard and plot against every holiday edict that I pronounced. So somehow, a homily emerged. And I realized then 
that it was tough to get away with stuff back in the old days. Right, folks? Come on, gray hairs. <laughs> it's tough. Whether you grew up in a small town in Iowa or in a brownstone in New York City, it was harder to be anonymous. Communities and neighbors were more likely to ask, where is Jimmy? if they did not see him pull up in that 1969 Rambler by 6 p.m. every day. Someone was always watching. In every sitcom, there's that trope, that character, that stock person that comes by every day, be it Kramer on Seinfeld or Aunt B on Andy Griffin. These watchful neighbors were not just keeping track of the comings and goings of everyone, they were also very likely to intervene when they thought there was a need for their sage advice or guidance. Certainly that was true for the young folks on the blocks I lived on who regularly misbehaved within eyesight of an elder who reminded us that they went to the PTA with our mother that they know our grandmother, and that they knew their, our great-grandmother. They were always there for us kids, particularly since we would often do things that were out of the ordinary. And to do something unexpected seemed to just bring on their watchful eyes even more. It was hard to disappear from the community without notice. I remember sometimes just hiding under, remember those big cars we had back in the 60s? You could just get underneath the car. I would just hide under the car just to get away from those nosy neighbors. Someone's always watching to see if something was out of place because watching really meant security and safety and comfort so all could sleep at night. And this may be quaint, but in retrospect, it was a little bit claustrophobic. But when we get older, as we all do, we're watching becomes a little different. We watch ourselves age. Ever so slowly in the mirror every year, as I'm approaching in a few days a birthday, every year I look and I go, who is that? I don't remember her, but as my face turns, as lines turn into riverbeds sometimes, and as the veins in our hands start to protrude and that pouch in our belly is no longer winter temporary, we're watching. We watch our words, too. I know after spending five days, five hours from here in 20 inches of snow up until yesterday in a cabin with six relatives on Cass Lake, I also watched my words. There are things that I might want to say after five days inside the cabin. But I refrained from saying them because I don't know quite how it was going to be taken. Watching requires a commitment to the status quo. When we watch, we are usually looking for someone or something to return, or someone or something that is out of place. Watching is paying attention with an agenda. But sometimes our watching vigilance may limit our ability to really see. Anyone can watch out for this or watch out for that. 
But when it comes to seeing, really seeing someone or something, I believe it requires us to be open to amazing possibilities. That what we watch may cause us to see differently. And sometimes that can be challenging and even frightening. Our social location, our upbringing, our experience all play a role in what we watch and how we see. When I was a kid, I remember watching what I call the country kids from Virginia come up to Philadelphia for the summer to visit their city cousins. And I used to watch them and make merciless fun of them because they didn't know the cool lingo, they didn't know the latest steps, they're just out of place. But I just watched them, but I did not see them. I did not see that many of these kids were afraid, that they were used to living in a different culture that they were used to even segregation, many of them. They did not see us, and I took no time to see them. We could only watch them and judge them in their overalls and their limitations compared to what we had. How many times do you make a quick judgment from watching someone, only to find out that your watching limited your ability to see? I recall a New Year's Eve when I was traveling to see a girlfriend that lived in Quincy, Massachusetts. And I lived in Boston, so I took the red line. At that point, Quincy was the last stop, and I had to walk a little bit, about a half a mile. This was in the 80s, and Boston was still reeling from all of the school desegregation tensions and racial strife. So people were on edge. People were on edge. So I was always watching always watching in neighborhoods like Quincy, where I wasn't necessarily welcome. So I walked quickly when I got off the red line, and I took the right turn here and the left turn there, and I kept walking, and then all of a sudden I heard somebody yelling at the top of their lungs, go home, Blackie, go home. I froze. I really froze. I said, okay, I think I can do this. Let me keep moving quickly. I can make it. It's just a couple more blocks. So I just kept walking, but something kept wanting me to turn around and see where this was coming from. And as I was watching for an assailant, I saw an old woman chasing a black dog <laughs> out of her yard, yelling, go home, Blackie, go home. Our eyes met, we both smiled, and she went on to share about how this dog was always chasing her cats. <laughs> I smiled and I saw her. She smiled and she saw me. And we both chuckled knowing that this could have turned out a little bit differently. <laughs> but there was no need for us to talk about it. I didn't need to send her to a workshop. <laughs> she was okay. We saw each other, and that was enough. We're good. It's so easy to watch, but hard to see. What are you watching but not seeing in your own lives these days, friends? Is it a friend that you saw over the holidays, maybe that had a 
drinking problem, as you say, in the family garage while they're inside? Are you always watching to see if that person is going to sneak off during dinner to the laundry room for a quick hit from a flask? We all have these friends and we truly love and care for them, but watching may not be what they need. They may need for us to see them in all of the messiness that they are. When we see that friend or relative as someone who has unprocessed trauma, low self-esteem, and an open wound of fragility, we are seeing them as a human being in pain, not as a subject that must behave in certain ways to satisfy the mores and values of the dinner table. To see is our task as people of faith who have made a commitment, we've made a commitment to come to church each week to be inspired by new visions that increase our aperture, that increase our aperture. When we choose to see instead of watch, we might see people framed by light instead of framed by boxes. When we choose to see instead of watch, our actions during the week become illuminated, making it easier for us to put these beautiful words we've said into action on Monday. In this new year, what if we did less watching and waiting and more seeing and doing? What might it look like in our own personal lives? Instead of watching and waiting, for your sister to leave that abusive relationship? What if you helped her see that she is worthy beyond belief and take her to meet another friend who had the courage and bravery to say enough? What would it look like in our families if we stop watching and waiting for folks to change their political views, and you saw that these relatives are really hungry for answers for a deep despair that they cannot even name. What would it look like in our church if we stopped watching and waiting for a more racially diverse congregation and instead form real relationship with a church of color where we got to worship together in a community of fellowship from time to time. We may have a chance to do that next year because tomorrow night I'm going to watch night. Anybody know what watch night is here? Raise your hand. Oh my goodness, we got one. Richard, you're cheating. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. You're gonna to learn today, as I say to my child, you're gonna to learn today, <laughs> whether you want to or not. All right, now there are two stories about watch night. The first from the years prior to the Civil War, when the owners of slaves would wait until the end of the year to settle their debts with their vendors and their business partners and other owners. Now these debts were often settled with the sale of human beings. 
the Africans that they had enslaved. So every New Year's Eve, enslaved folks would gather just before midnight to pray on their hands and knees and pray that they were not sold away to settle a debt at the end of the year from their families and friends. Now, later, watch night service symbolized an historical fact. And that was on the night of December 31st, 1862. It was called Freedom Eve. And free and freed blacks living in the Union states gathered in churches or other safe spaces while thousands of their enslaved brothers and sisters in the South stood, knelt, and prayed on plantations in other slaveholding states, waiting for President Abraham Lincoln to sign the Emancipation Proclamation into law. It went into effect on January 1st, 1865. It is a tradition in the black church in America that five minutes before midnight, men, women, and children will kneel, hold hands, and pray to God for the next year and for their brothers and sisters all around the diaspora. And I include Nicaragua in the diaspora, because all on the Pacific coast, there are Africans there too. African Americans of all faiths continue this tradition at designated meeting spaces and churches throughout this country to celebrate being the survivors. And I'll be going to a service tomorrow night somewhere in Minneapolis, St. Paul, wherever I can find one. And it'll be my first time finding one here in Minnesota. So I'm excited about what it may mean for me. And I'm going to do it just like I've done it most of my life. And hopefully they'll have the food that's appropriate for such an event which is collard greens so we have money for the new year, fish so we swim through the new year, and black-eyed peas called Hoppin' John for good luck, and of course, cornbread to sop the whole thing up. <laughs> so maybe next year, we'll have a real relationship with that community. We'll see what happens. And maybe next year, we'll wait and see together in an alliance for continued freedom seeking, continued justice demanding, and continued struggle for human goodness. So let's watch and see. Blessed be. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.